Welcome to the Brave Insider Podcast. Introducing your hosts, fighting out of the blue corner from Ireland, Phil Irish Thunder And his opponent, fighting out of the red corner from South Africa, Jason J. Money Van What's up, guys? Welcome to this week's episode of the Brave Insider Podcast. I am joined by my favorite redhead, as always, Mr. Full Irish Thunder Campbell, and the OG of MMA, Mr. Kirik Jeanette. How you doing, brother? So What's going on, guys? I've been looking forward to this interview like a kid before Christmas. It's, it's been one of the most exciting weeks of a build-up to a show that I've had for a while. Pleasure and an honor to be here. Pleasure and an honor to be in your presence, even if it's your e-presence, as always. So I Can think, we, let's just... Yeah. Sorry. sorry, go ahead, Jay. So I think just to cover the news that's going on before we get into everything else, so we, we started the discussion a little bit, but apparently there's some news in terms of sports getting going in a few places, and uh, you guys brought up Florida. Just give us the details of where it is, what's happening, what's allowed, not allowed. Phil, you want to take that or shall I? Well, uh, you, from what I understand, it's that um, sports, the majority of sports, as you've alluded to, with a national presence, are considered um, an essential service in the state um, of Florida. You being a little bit uh, closer to the situation, being a, an American yourself, you can kind of expand upon that for us, possibly. Certainly. The WWE has a performance center in Orlando, Florida. Several days before WrestleMania, it was shut down on orders of the governor. They filmed as many matches as they could beforehand and played them on a Saturday and a Sunday via tape delay without actually word getting out about what Vince reached out to the governor's office and made the case for um, sports and entertainment on a national level being... um, being allowed to circumvent the shelter-in-place orders. Previously in Florida, it had been limited to things like police, firefighters, uh, drug stores, things like that, and it was expanded by the governor in several categories. For example, uh, domestic violence and drug abuse counseling is now allowed with social distancing. And another thing that they added, one of the four things the governor added, was sport, any sports or I suppose entertainment with a, uh, with a national presence. The governor's office was questioned why that was added and he said it because it's vital to the Florida, Florida economy. So the WWE at their performance center in Orlando is now filming content, new content uh, without an audience. I've seen a little bit of it and I would have to say it I'm not a huge professional wrestling fan. I don't think it works without the audience, but I think MMA will work. Yeah, I think WWE and those kind of things where it's more entertainment relies a lot on the crowd interaction as opposed to MMA and boxing and those kind of things where the fight is the fight. You could just watch that with a commentator. I also thought, nobody's taken me up on my great idea, but I thought that fans, they should set up some huge... um, 
uh, speakers in the area and fans should be able to uh, be able to watch and, and shout. Um, I, that, that I think would be fun. You know, it'd be fun to see what kind of crazy noises fans can come up with digitally. You know, who knows that being Florida, maybe they'd be playing tiger noises instead of cheers. But uh, I, I could imagine that being entertaining. So I wanted to, to get your opinion on what the, the possible implications are for mixed martial arts of Florida considering uh, sports um, an essential service. Do you think that's going to lend itself to Florida, at least for the meantime, becoming a little bit of a haven for competitive mixed martial arts? Um, it's limited to sports with a national presence. So local, uh, Florida-wide, Southeast-wide uh, promotions are not, I think, going to be jumping back in. But it does open the door for the UFC to come in. And I know as a fact that Florida is one of the states that the UFC was looking into before they had their uh, prior to the Fight Island idea. The Apex Center, uh, which is the, the U.S.'s, uh, excuse me, the UFC's um, facility for producing content, for filming and producing content, is in Nevada. The um, commissioner in Nevada said it is it's too early to talk about whether the UFC can open up in May the way Dana wants to, but he did say in early May he would have a, uh, he would have a statement about it. I'm fairly confident that you're going to see UFC events in Florida within the next month. Yeah, yeah I, th I think a lot of the sports, if, if you look at what's happening globally, I think a lot of them are targeting June as kind of the, the, the peg for it. If you look at football and all these other things that are, that are going around at the moment. But I mean, if, I think the, the problem with all of these things is it's great to be the first one back, but it's going to take two, three weeks to see what the impact actually is in terms of infections or any of those kind of things. So it's, you can be the first one, but could you be the first one to create an issue as well? I think it's the problem. That is a problem. Um, and when I was, uh, gosh, when I was about seven years old, my dad came home from work and he said he was working on a, a dam in Nigeria and he said we had somebody die. And I was like, what? Somebody died? And he said, yeah, he walked me through the whole thing. The, uh, somebody had a big uh, load of cement, and the guy was guiding it, and it swung, and it killed the guy. I'm like, you have to shut down the dam. And my father was like, no. He goes, anytime you do any development, people are going to die. And it, it's, a, it's, it, it's not something that people like to talk about in public, but officials have to make the choice between commerce and death all the time. Um, where we are, at least in the United States, I have no idea because there's insufficient testing. I mean, I have several close friends who are nurses working exclusively with COVID patients. Even they're not getting tested. They can't, the, there's not enough tests for them. So, got this. you know, what, what's the number of lives going to be? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe none. Maybe too many. Yeah. Um, but the, the simple fact that something could cause someone to die and it sounds very harsh to say it, but it's just true. Isn't necessarily disqualifying. Yeah, I think it's it's, and also, how do you prove that it's related to the event? You know, how do you prove that it wasn't a previous infection and it just got worse after the event? So, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into it, but it's inevitable that things have to come back. I mean, economy and money is the key driver for most things. Stuff is gonna have to come back at some point. Agreed 100%. Yeah, a man doesn't live or die by COVID-19 alone.
Yeah, Africa's got a big push on that at the moment because guys are going, yeah, COVID will kill me in two weeks, but hunger will kill me tomorrow. So it's, it's you know, it is one of those things. It's just, it, it's an inevitability, I think, at some point. Agreed. Well, it's, it's this, like, even, even if you break it down to your, your own community, social distancing works outside of an enclosed space. Have you gone, have you gone to like a, a Walmart or any kind of supermarket recently? Silly fuckers are not observing social distancing. I had an old lady reach over my shoulder to pick something out of a shelf. She was nearly getting fucking double leg. Just people aren't, people aren't taking this on board. They're still slipping into the same modalities of behavior that are just going to cause this period of lockdown to extend. So if you can't breed that ethos of social distancing into people on a micro communal level, how do you expect people to adhere to something on a much grander scale? Agreed. I had one bizarre experience where I was in a store buying something. The, uh, the little uh, barcode had fallen off, so I took a picture of the barcode. I was trying to show it to the clerk, and he grabbed my phone and started pressing it to make the thing bigger. I was like, ah, you're putting viruses <laughs> on my phone that's going to be in my eye and my ear. So, yeah, there's definitely not a uh, complete, uh, complete understanding about social distancing, at least not yet. And I think that the other problem is, you know, when, when you're doing these events, and this was always my big issue that people were overlooking, is when you do the event, you need medical staff there. So you need to take a doctor or two, you need to take three or four other medical technicians, you need to take an ambulance. Those people could be treating five, 600 people in the time that you're running an event. So it's not just the people that are getting infected. What is the bigger impact of some, an industry that's already short-staffed and under pressure and everything else? And now you're going to take six people to go watch, you know, eight people do an event. Is it really worth it? Then? I agree with you completely. One of the central concerns that, that I've actually written about as far as the UFC holding a show is they've said they're going to test every single person who's there. Normally, I think they show up with about 150 people. Maybe they can do it with with 40, but as I said, I've got close friends who are working exclusively with COVID patients and they can't get tested. So I, I do have qualms about using tests for, for entertainment when, when people on the front lines can't get them. And taking away the resources like the medical staff and doctors who could, you know, and if you take someone to, for a weekend, in a weekend they could be treating 100, 150 people a day. Absolutely true. But we're in a bizarre circumstance in the United States. Another friend of mine, Hillary Williams, she's a, a former fighter, a former ADCC world champ. She's now a young neurologist. She's actually not working now because nobody's going into hospitals and medical offices over fears of COVID. So there's this bizarre situation where like the ICU is over the, even here in my little town, the, the local ICU is overrun with COVID patients. And at the same time, there's other docs who are, who are shuttered. It's definitely the strangest time of my life. And I think the problem as well is we don't have enough data, being that it's only been five months, to actually know what the best case scenario is. You know, if you look at Sweden, there's no lockdown. Then you look at South Africa, everyone's stuck inside. You look at the UK, you know, one part of the UK has got one rule set, another one's got another, and yet everyone's still growing in terms of numbers. So we don't even know what the right or wrong way to handle this is. Uh, agreed. We are living in interesting times. The data is inconclusive because people can't be tested. 
So even the, the figures that I'm not being conspiratorial and I'm just sort of surmising what's going on. The figures that you're being given are in no way reflective of the situation due to, a, we had, we had Nolo Keefe on um, a couple of weeks back and Noel tested positive for coronavirus, but yet he had to wait, I think it was two weeks to get tested. He had to get on a bus, public transport to get tested, to be confirmed. But yet um, a friend of mine who was incredibly sick, I'm convinced had it, was told he could only be confirmed as a case if he went to hospital, that he was advised to stay away from hospital. So the, I wouldn't really say that the, the, the data is worth the paper it's written on because it's inconclusive because you can't have empirical evidence without people being tested. Yeah, I think the very holy. I have a I have a cousin who's a uh, a principal. <clears throat> excuse me, a principal of an elementary school in Harlem, and she believes that she had it. She believes her husband had it, and they were told don't go in unless it becomes life threatening. They 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 weren't tested, but very clearly they 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 both did have it. Yeah, I think I mean the, like we say, the biggest thing that needs to happen is is large-scale testing because no, no country's tested more than one percent of its population so that no, no country really knows what the number is they just know what the the symptomatic numbers were that eventually got to hospital so i, I mean i don't know i'm in in two minds about when this thing is going to end or when we're going to start realizing how bad the situation is but again like we said i think economy is going to push it to the point where it just has to happen you know if people can go to work they can go play sport because of what's the difference you know realistically from a from a work perspective and economic perspective the biggest thing that's missing in the united states that i think was pioneered by the south koreans is uh case tracing in south korea when anybody tests positive boop, 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 they start tracing them back um, and in the United States, there's, there's none of that. We've got a, a pretty woefully underfunded public health infrastructure, and they, they just don't have the means to find out, you know, to do contact tracing. Uh, and I, that's something I definitely would like to see. In the United States, every single person is getting sent a check for $1,200, which, you know, I, I'm not real crazy about. I'd much rather see that, that $1,200 per person go to uh, expanded testing and to go to contact tracing. And then we can get back to work and make our own twelve hundred dollars. Well, that's going to cause some uh, some interesting discussions after the lockdown, I think. Well, there's a in the UK there's a government retention scheme. So if you um, obviously you're an employed worker, you're employed by a corporation or any kind of organisation, um, if they sign up to the scheme, the government will pay eighty percent of your full time wage, which seems pretty cool to be fair. Like if. That 20%, if you think about it logistically, that 20% that you would have spent was probably on gas, was probably on something work-related. So if you're getting 80%, that's more than livable for most people. Uh, yeah, I, I, had a, I had an unexpected boon here in the States. Um, a few weeks back now, I got a phone call from the COO of my company, and he said, I don't know if you've thought this through, but there's no MMA fights. So there's no, we get $15 for every show in America, for, uh, for every, excuse me, for every fight in America for records and suspension keeping. And that literally overnight disappeared right down to nothing. So without missing a beat, I said, you're fired. And he was like, what? And I said, it's all right, I'm fired too. I actually fired myself, fired him. And that way we're able to, so far, I think through August, we're gonna be able to, uh, to make payroll for everybody else. 
So I went on um, my state pay, my state uh, federal, uh, my state unemployment insurance, which is like maybe 30, 40% of what it originally was. And I, I, that wasn't sustainable, but the federal government has now added in 600 US dollars per week on top of it. So it is actually sustainable. It's gonna be at least for four months. And my guess is if it has to be for longer, it'll be for longer. Um, so I'm in a, I'm definitely in an odd place where I've, I've fired myself and, uh, and I, I've still got enough to, sus to sustain. Did you have an argument with yourself when you were going through the firing process? Is it, Carrick, you're fired. You can't fire me. I quit, damn it. I was laughing too hard at the, at, at the, the absurdity of it all to, to have an argument with myself. Yeah, South Africa's in a in a I don't know in a in a right funny situation with all of that stuff. So all of that doesn't really exist in terms of uh, there there is some UIF stuff going on in terms of unemployment insurance, but it's nowhere near enough because a large part of the population obviously unemployed. You know the, the the support that is there is very difficult to access. So a lot of guys are just in a really I don't know really strange situation in South Africa. So I don't know it's going to be. It's going to take a while for them to come right, but they've already said that they're going to start opening the mines, which to me is a is a big risk because you're putting a lot of people into really small small spaces, um, and that's you know guys that could be very quickly infecting other people. I think they're opening to sixty or seventy percent capacity this week or next week. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I, I can't think of a situation more likely than a mine a mine shaft to to to, to spread a virus. But again, that's, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the business in South Africa, mining, agriculture, that, that's kind of what, you know, pulls the economy. And if they don't do that, there isn't enough government support to kind of run all of those industries either. But we'll see. So I think interesting times ahead. I think it's a, a, lot, a lot of stuff going on. Obviously, whatever new news we hear and all that kind of stuff, we'll, we'll discuss every week on the podcast. But I think... Moving, moving on and moving into the reason for the podcast and what we wanted to do this week is to give you all the real backstory, the, the, the inside view, the long version of the story of the OG of mixed martial arts. Definitely one of my favorite people in the game. Full, I'm sure, shares that exact same sentiment. He spent many lives 100%. listening to some lovely stories from Uncle Kerrick. So I think... To start us off, give us give us kind of your childhood because obviously it's got a link to, to 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 where I'm from. It's got an African story to it, a bit of a link, a bit of a strange thing that most people don't know about. Just knowing that you're in MMA. Oh Jesus! Uh, let's see. Grandfather was the uh, my grandfather. My paternal grandfather was the captain of the wrestling team at Lehigh. So my daddy grew up wrestling uh, and with a heavy bag and a speed bag in the basement. Uh, my daddy was a wrestler, uh, married my mother the day he turned 18 and started going to school full time, never wrestled again. But he was a founding member of the Harvard Judo Club um, under a guy named uh, uh, Tichimura that I actually, a couple of years ago, before my father passed, I connected those two. I found his old judo coach. He's a Sanskrit scholar. And uh, I connected the two up again. That was, uh, that was fun. Um, but it all began in Lesotho. Uh, it began at the uh, Holiday Inn in Maseru that was later taken over by uh, Sol, Sol Kersner. And I used to go there and watch movies, and I watched a Bruce Lee movie. I had never seen it. It was Enter the Dragon. I'd sort of heard about it, but I hadn't seen it. And 
it's the single most outside of being born. It's the single most influential thing that ever happened to me. Uh, on the way home, I tried to kick every dog I could see. I was chasing dogs down the street, trying to get them with Bruce Lee kicks. And I expressed my, my interest in martial arts to my dad. And he had a, uh, at the time, the South Korean government had sent out two six-three black belts in Taekwondo to train the, uh, the paramilitary force in Lesotho, the police mounted unit. And he had a friend who was, ah, he was like a sergeant or something in there. So he got me in training with the, uh, with the PMU guys on the, uh, on the grounds of uh, Lesotho's national prison. And that was, uh, that was the beginning of it. Wanted to be Bruce Lee. <laughs> and then the link to Sol Kersner, obviously you came to South Africa to the Sun City event, which was also owned and started by Sol Kersner back in the day as well. Sol Kersner has actually done a fair amount of martial arts related stuff. He did some American rules kickboxing stuff. Um, he's a tough guy. You know, he's a tough Jew. So there's no surprise to me that uh, he likes combat sports. And then how did that develop from, from obviously the love of Bruce Lee to then start pushing into, into the next phase of your life, still in Africa and then, and then moving away from Africa? Uh, when I moved, you know, I just became completely besotted with, uh, be completely besotted with martial arts in general and Taekwondo specifically. So when I, I got done with the summer in Lesotho, my parents had split up at that point. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, went back there told my mom I wanted to do martial arts. She took me to uh, a judo place that was run by Jimmy Pedro, actually at the time run by Jimmy Pedro's dad. And I was like, that looks pretty cool. She took me to an Aikido place that was all hairy hippies. And I was like, nah, that doesn't look very cool. And then she took me to the Sukchung Institute of Taekwondo. When I walked in, there was a picture of the, uh, the head man arm in arm with who else but Bruce Lee. And I was like, yeah, that's it, I'm done. Uh, and uh, I stuck there. So I used to train in the summers in Lesotho and at Mr. Chung's uh, during, the, uh, during the winter. Uh, I ended up getting a first degree black belt in Taekwondo from um, Mr. Chung in Lesotho. He went on to uh, found Taekwondo in uh, Kenya and he became Jomo Kenyatta's bodyguard. And those kind of connections led him to a very good life. He owned a restaurant. He had an export-import business, jewelry store, all kinds of things. Uh, I went to university, uh, taught martial arts when I was in university, graduated in 83. Um, I bought into a martial arts school that a friend of mine had recently opened up in town. Did that for 10 years. I saw UFC 1, and I was, I was like, uh-oh, this, this, is, this is something new. So we bought Horry and Gracie's tapes. We all threw in 50 bucks or something, bought Horry and Gracie's tapes. I was a little dubious about it. I thought that UFC one was kind of rigged for, I thought, well, I thought that uh, Taylor Tooley, the sumo was going to win it. I've always had huge respect for sumos. And when I was wrong, I'm like, eh, this thing's kind of rigged. That sumo guy would have killed that hoist guy. You and mean we, the dude that got his teeth knocked out of his face? Yeah, that's the guy that I had pinned. We all took bets. That's who I chose. You know, his tooth, his tooth, he had two teeth knocked out. One of them exited the cage and landed beside big John McCarthy's wife's foot. And the <laughs> other one was embedded in Gerard Godot's foot for years, I think. <laughs> oh, the good old days.
So I was a little dubious, but we bought our tapes, and the one of the tapes was about guard passing. And this is stupid. Nobody knows what the guard is. Why should I bother learning to pass this stupid thing? But we had a little guy at the gym who'd been in uh, he'd been in lockup for a few years. Came out of lockup, took to martial arts. I'd played judo a little bit. I'd wrestled for a long time. And after a couple of weeks, he said, hey, let's try and roll. And I was like, yeah, great. And he tapped me, triangle, 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 armbar, triangle. And at that moment, I became a true believer. And we set up what I believe was still 1993. We set up what I believe was the first MMA uh, gym in my, in my state. Uh, we called it New England Submission Fighting because mixed martial arts wasn't even a term that, that, was, that was well known at that point. And how structured was your, your training back then? What, what kind of a program were you implementing for your students? Was, was it, you know, we do boxing this day, we do kickboxing this day, we grapple this day? How did you make it become a, a mixed martial arts gym? We had no idea what we were doing, none whatsoever. At the time, I didn't know the difference between gi and no gi. Um, all we wanted to learn was these moves. So we, you know, I'd buy a gi video. To, uh, a guy named Pedro Carvalho came out. A guy named Paul Vili owned a company called World Martial Arts. And he came out with a gi thing. And, and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I didn't know that there was a difference between gi and no gi. So all we did was focus on conditioning and learning submissions and escapes. Um, and then the breakthrough moment for me, there was a, a predecessor to my site called uh, Tim Mussels, and it was a message board. And somebody found um, Hickson Gracie's blue belt test. Because up until I saw this blue belt test, it had just been a bunch of moves to me. There was positions and moves and escapes, and, and it was confusing. And the blue belt test just showed, mount, how to get into it, what to do from it, guard, how to pass it, how to sweep from it, how to – and then it, a light went off in my head, and I'm like, oh, I kind of get it. There's positions, and in each position you can try and pass the position or further your position or punch them or do submissions and that was that and conditioning was the basis of what we did for a, a for a fairly long time and how, how did that move to to kind of you getting more involved in mma and, and the industry outside of just being a gym owner where did that how did that happen i used to every friday we used to drive to new york and get a private lesson with henzel gracie and sometimes when he couldn't make it, we'd be really disappointed because we got this, this bum named Ricardo Almeida. We're like, I don't know what he did, but I want, I want Enzo. So we, we, were, we were doing privates with him. And my memory is so terrible. I literally can hide my own Easter eggs. When I go hide Easter eggs for little kids and I help them go around and find them, I can't remember where I put the Easter eggs. So I had CTE all is real, bro. CTE is very real. CTE is real. I had all these moves that I was learning, and I, I couldn't remember them. So I started taking notes on them, and I still couldn't remember them. And we bought a, an Apple computer that allowed us to – I had to buy a special card, an S-video card, but it allowed us to capture images from the video. So uh, Craig Kukuk and Henzo had an 11-tape set that my mom got me for Christmas. And I digitized several images from every single one of those tapes and put notes on them. 
and then I laid them out in a layout program called Quark Express, and I showed it to Henzo, and Henzo's guy, Craig Kukuk is, so I showed it to Kukuk, and he was like, eh, whatever, and I would, I said, I'll give it to you for free, like, it's yours if you want it, and he was just like, eh, and so I'm like, all right, I'll do it myself, but I couldn't use any of their techniques. It had uh, it 11 tape. It's about 100 and some techniques. So I had to come up with an equivalent for all 100 of those techniques. And then I kept going with it. It took me about two years. Uh, and it was the first book on MMA. It was about 600 pages. Had about, oh, God, 800 techniques in it. Maybe 3,000 photographs. Uh, and that was the first book on MMA. But there was like 12, 14 kids doing MMA in my gym, but I didn't know how to get out word about the book. There was a, there was a magazine, Full Contact Fighter, a guy named Joel Gold put that together. And so I took out ads in uh, Joel Gold's magazine and I'm like, I need a website. Like it's the only way I could think of to get the word out. And so I looked on the internet, um, Disney beat me to nhb.com which is the one I most wanted because everybody called it NHB, no holds barred. Disney beat me to that by a few weeks. Uh, I could have gotten MMA.com, but uh, it was 200 bucks. And I'm like, oh, $200, that's way too much. But nobody had gotten MixedMartialArts.com, so I grabbed that. And at the time, we called the sport Submission Fighting. So I grabbed SubmissionFighting.com. And we basically put up an advertisement for the, – the website was just an advertisement for the book. The guys that I was doing it with said, hey, we should have a, a message board. And I'm like, nah, I, I use Tim Roussel's message board. I don't want to do that. And they said, just, just let us do it. And I'm like, all right, put in a message board. The function that I was really excited about was a fight finder, not like the Sherdog fight finder for records, but a way for people to have fights with each other because there was no events at the time. So every once in a while, we'd find out some Jeet Kune Do guy wanted to have a fight, and he'd come into the gym, and one of our guys would fight one of his guys. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I, it was like Tinder. It was basically Tinder for fighting. Um, that was what I thought was going to be our killer app. But we set that up, and it turned out nobody cared much about that. But Tim Roussel had the uh, just just – audacious plan of charging $5 a year for membership on his message board. And at that time, it would have been 95, 90, no, 98. Nobody was charging for the internet. And so everybody left Tim Mussel's, came to the UG, and uh, it's been there ever since. Great. And, and I've got a question. How many of those books are still around? Uh, let's see. I think I've got one. There's one here in the gym. There's probably three left. I didn't know anything about publishing. And so I literally just went to the local copy store, would, would give him a master. He'd make 600 pages of it, put holes in it. And we'd put it in a three ring binder. But it turns out if you flip the pages about the third time, they start ripping and ripping and ripping. And for a while we were, we were giving them free little, little round sticky things to make the holes a little bit stronger. So I think any ones that are still out there are probably completely in, uh, in tatters. At what stage of your early involvement of mixed martial arts, if at all by this stage, did you think, yeah, this, this has legs, this could potentially become the, the next uh, free form of fighting for the masses to absorb? I think it was going to happen until it happened. 
Um, it was like a, a really niche sport. I, I was crazy about it. Like I said, when I first started writing the book, I didn't even know how to let one person on the planet know that, hey, there's a book on this now. Um, I, I, I just never thought the sport would get big. And then when, uh, when uh, John McCain did his infamous uh, MMA is human cockfighting and it was driven off a pay-per-view, I thought that was basically going to be the end and it would take us 30, 40 years to, to ever build a sport up to anything. Um, then uh, Zufa, the Fertitta brothers, um, and, uh, and they got Dana. They took over the UFC. It still wasn't doing well. It wasn't until the Ultimate Fighter won that the sport took off. And I, I remember being in a bar watching the Ultimate Fighter one. I think I had too many beers because I don't remember the fight that well. Everybody told me afterwards, years later, everybody was like, that was the moment that MMA was uh, the tough one finale between Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin is the moment that MMA was, was, was built. But at the time, I, it, I didn't realize it. It was just another watching a fight in a bar on, on TV. So I, I, I didn't think MMA was going to become a major sport until it became a major sport. And what was the moment when it dawned on you where you went, oh, damn, this actually is something that's going to have legs? Uh, UFC on Fox One. When the UFC signed on Fox and it was a $600 million contract, that, that, that blew my mind. That, that, that was the moment when I'm like, okay, the sport's kind of arrived. And, and it was, second. it was, a, and it was such. A, that was, it was a massive moment for the sport. But it was for anybody that was a fan of the sport before that. It was such a fucking anti-climax because <laughs> was Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos. So you're watching it for one fight, and it ended very early in the first round. So if you were trying to pitch that to people who had never seen the sport, so you had the eyes of Fox the. Fox Sports, Fox Network are involved in MMA. And you got your buddies round for the very first time. You're like, this is MMA. And they were like, after a minute, oh, that's it. Oh, okay. Uh, anybody want to go shoot some pool or something? Or? <laughs> and then, that was uh, either one week later or two weeks later, I forget, you had uh, Shogun versus Dan Henderson, which is one of the top ten fights of all time. They um, couldn't come over that. They decided not to. Um, but it still worked. And then I'm, I'm going to ask you one, one of my ones. So w when and did you watch any of the Pride stuff back in the, back in the early days? Oh, very, very early. I bought a, uh, I bought a, in order to get Pride, I bought a satellite dish and I put it on my roof. It didn't work quite that well on the roof. And I remember one time, all my buddies came over to watch Pride. It was one of the very early ones. I had the satellite dish set up on the roof and it wasn't working. So I took it down and I set it on the roof of the chicken coop and it was working better on the chicken coop. And then somebody drove their car over the cable and, and, and knocked it down. So we're all waiting there and some straggler destroys. And then I went running out, put it back up again and we did get to see it. But yeah, it was uh, even before Pride, I watched a couple of, at the time I, I was dubious, there was a couple of, um, I'll call them uh, hard works from Japan. It's like using real yeah. moves, but it's a predetermined bout. And I remember watching a couple of those, even before Pride was on TV, going, ah, this is kind of cool. Something's not quite right. 
Would that be uh, kind of like Pine Chris? Pride was a mix of works and uh, and shoots too. Yeah. And what was your thoughts when when uh, obviously when when Liddell went to go and do the whole the whole Pride Pride excursion as well? That was like a huge deal for Dana White, but for whatever reason, and I think I share this with a lot of MMA fans, I never cared where a guy was from. Like, if my favorite fighter is Vanderlei Silva, I, I didn't care if and my, my, my favorite, actually my favorite fighter probably is Sakuraba. So mm. when, when Chuck went over there, I never got that like us versus them mentality behind it. Um, so it wasn't that big a deal to me one way or the other. It was like one fighter went over there, got his ass kicked, you know, did, did well at least once, got his ass kicked, and th that's normal. And Ra Rampage was American too, so it's not like it was a proper us versus them anyway. The, I'll tell you the one, the one thing very, very early on, say 94, 95, I definitely had a Brazilian bias. And when American wrestlers started going over and uh, fighting an IVT and beating the stew out of the top, Luta Libre and BJJ guys, I definitely felt a little like, hey, wait a minute, this jiu-jitsu is our thing, and these American wrestlers are coming in and kind of ruining it. That was the only time I ever, I, I ever felt a little bit, of, little bit of bias. Except for that, may the best man or woman win. And then, obviously, move, moving to the next phase of, of, you know, what you were doing, when did you start getting further, you know, involved in records keeping and, and really getting into to mixed martial arts from that aspect? Um, we, let's see, what was that? We, we had a message, as I said, my, uh, my fight finder, were, you know, my tender for fighting didn't work. The message board was working. We had, uh, we had content, we had the fighter's notebook, we had content to sell. Uh, Boss Rutten put together, um, in fact, it was inspired by what I did. He did a better job than I did. He put together a, uh, he and a guy named Joe Jennings that owned Panther Promotions, which was the first martial arts videotape big success, put together a book. Um, I bought that from them. And then somebody saw an RFP saying records keeper. And prior to that, again, searching around for other niches, um, I had reached out to Joel Gold, the guy that, um, that founded Full Contact Fighter, because the only two databases available were Joel's and Sherdog's. And Sherdog, Jeff Sherwood, who's a great dude, um, definitely wasn't going to sell it because it was his bread and butter. So I worked out a... Uh, pretty big deal to acquire the rights to Joel Gold's database. Uh, and then a couple of years later, again, just trying to get something that would interest people on my website. A couple of years later, I saw there was an RFP for a records keeper for MMA. I flew out to Kansas City, Missouri, maybe. I met with a bunch of the commissioners and Thank God, one of the commissioners was a UGer, one of the regulars from my forum, a guy named uh, Dale Kleparchuk from Canada. And he said, guys, this is a good guy. He really loves, really loves this sport. There was a few other people um, competing against me. And um, either because my presentation was, was good or because Dale saved me or some mix of both, uh, I was selected as the MMA records keeper. And that was, I guess, 12 years ago been doing that ever since how did you get involved in the the broadcast side 
of mixed martial arts. How did you get involved in, in commentary? Because I still very much consider myself a, an apprentice commentator. So to be working alongside yourself, for me, is one, fucking mind-blowing, and two, a really good exercise in seeing how um, somebody with as much knowledge and with as much expertise in mixed martial arts conveys that in commentary. Two words. My best friend, Kip Kolar. Um, this, we got to go back now to about 1988. Kip is uh, a yeah, local, kick, local kickboxer. I had not met him yet. Um, he had recently graduated from college. He was doing martial arts, kickboxing. And he heard that there was a Brazilian guy doing seminars on the weekend. Um, and anybody could fight the guy any, if, if they wanted. He goes, I'm interested in that. So he shows up. And who's standing there in this room with about 15 other people but Hicks and Gracie? And Hickson says, I'm going to teach you some moves, and then we can practice them. Does a seminar. I think Hickson was 250 bucks for a weekend at that point. This would have been, yeah, this would have been about 88. So he learns an arm bar and a guard pass from Hickson. And then Hickson says, does anybody want to go? Anybody want to go against me? And he goes, if you go hard, I'll go hard. If you go easy, I'll go easy. And Kip's a smart guy. He wasn't going to be first. And he said there was some big American football player there. And that guy goes, yeah, I'll try it. And he tries to tackle Hickson like hard. And Hickson put the guy down hard. So Kip's like, all right, I'm going to do the easy one. And he comes out very respectfully, very gently on the knees, touches hands, and he gets tapped out. And he instantly said, Jesus, this is way better than kickboxing. Like, this is actually fun. In kickboxing, if you lose, you get your bell rung bad. And here you lose, and it's nothing. You just lose 40 times. Nothing happens. He's like, this is a better mousetrap. So he did the same thing I did, bought tapes, set up a little club, identical thing. And then he looked around, and he said, there's no competitions for this at all. Like, well, the UFC started, so that really took his club off. But he said, there's nowhere, nowhere for us to compete. So he and his students went to uh, the local library. There was no internet. Found the address and phone number of anybody in New England that they could find that had anything like judo or sambo or wrestling or anything, jujitsu, whatever. And they, he put on a tournament called the Winter Whirlwind. And that would have been 97-ish maybe, somewhere in there. He invited me to it, again, just by saw my Yellow Pages ad, sent me an invite. I didn't make the first one. I made the second one. Uh, we really hit it off. Um, we really hit it off great. And he said, would you like to be the commissioner of this new grappling group I've got? And I was like, sure, I'd love to. Uh, then he got into uh, MMA promotion in 99. Uh, he started doing uh, mass destruction. And it was in a, a friend of mine who's now deceased. It was in a friend of mine's gym in Rhode Island. It was pretty, it was a, it was a crazy scene. The, it was a fight kickboxing gym and they had two rings. And so everybody would watch an MMA fight in one ring and then they'd run to the other room and they'd watch it in the other rings. And they were running back and forth and back and forth, real wild scene. And when, it, when his MMA promotion got to be a little bit more uh, sophisticated, I started doing, uh, started doing commentary for him. And so that way, and, and judging and refing and even competing a little bit. So that would have been er, very early 2000s, I guess. But yeah, um, a huge part of anything I've ever done that ended up having some worth, uh, Iota Kip.
And when did, when did kind of MMA and MMA fighters move in your mind from being, you know, just kind of backyard brawler fighter types to actually converging into being actual sports athletes? In your mind, when did that shift happen? Uh, I, I'm not sure if I could do an exact moment for that, but I, but the, 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 rather than a, I put it on a person, the first person to really figure mixed martial arts out was Pat Militich and the formula he figured out still remains in order to, to be at the highest level of mixed martial arts. You have to be able to hang in the gym with like national class kickboxers. You have to be able to roll with national class jujitsu guys, and you have to be able to hang in a good collegiate um, wrestling training session. That was the standard. You had to be able to hang in those three areas. And the first guy that I know that figured that out was Pat Militich. Um, his gym at the time was a racquetball court. That was it. You had to like duck to get in. And they produced, they produced Jens Pulver and Matt Hughes and Robbie Lawler and Big Tim Sylvia. And they did all that out of a racquetball court. So uh, the, 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 the first people that uh, – first guy to figure out mixed martial arts was Pat Militich. And if you, had to, if you had to ask me who's my hero in MMA, it's definitely Pat. He's the first guy that figured it out. And then the, the, the link between yourself and obviously Brave Combat Federation, where did, where did you first see Brave, hear about Brave, and then how did that link happen between yourselves and Brave leading up to where it is now? Uh, yeah, that was, um, that's one of my, uh, that's one of my favorite sort of all-time moments in this, in this insane sport of ours um i got an email out of the blue from lucas and he said hey we're putting on a show in bahrain do you want to come and i'm like sure of course i do get the atlas out find out where bahrain is because i'm an american so my knowledge of geography is is, is god awful um i'm still not sure where ireland is and when i look across the atlantic somebody told me it's portugal i'm american i'm terrible at geography uh, so I went to the first one. Um, I was met at the airport by a guy with an iPad who just looked at it, said, you're Carrick? I said, yeah. He goes, come with me. We walked right through the special passport section. He, he'd already taken care of all that. Um, it was the best I've ever been treated in my life anywhere. Um, so I, I, I covered the first one as a reporter. And then Lucas reached out and he said, I got an offer you can't refuse. I'm like, all right, I'm going to wake up with a dead horse's head in bed with me tomorrow. What is it? And, uh, and it was, he said, do you want to do commentary for us? And I said, yeah, of course I do. I've been doing it ever since. So what was the first show that you commentated? Uh, the first one I went to would have been two years ago. It was or two and a half now. It was the, uh, it was the uh, sort of world championship. And the first one I commentated after that was, I don't remember, CTE as a thing. <laughs> well, we went to the first show at the same time, because the first time I went to Bahrain, attended a Brave, was 2017 World Championships as well. Oh, that's it. We were there. <laughs> and, and 
kind of how it's developed. I mean, you were there in 2017, you saw what the show was there and, you know, what it looked like, where it was going. How have you seen that now build up to where kind of Brave is today and how it's changed for yourself and for the promotion? Brave is the best mixed martial arts organization on the planet, bar none. And it's because Brave doesn't have the financial constraints that every other promotion does. I mean, my best friend is a fight promoter. And let me tell you, fight promoters are dirtbags. Why are they dirtbags? Because that's the only way you can make money. I mean, I think every fighter deserves $100,000 for every fight. But if you did that, you go broke the very first time you did that. As a lot of promoters, a lot of people have come in and tried to quote unquote, do mixed martial arts right. They overpay. It ends up being a disaster. It doesn't work out. But because Sheikh Khalid has resources and because he has a vision for what mixed martial arts should be, he can do it. He doesn't have to chase a buck the way every other promotion on the planet does. Um, and that's why, it's my, that's why it's my favorite MMA organization on, on earth ever. And I think we also have, have fun when we're there. Yes, we're there to do a job and we do it to the, the, the very best of, of our abilities. But we also get to have all these amazing experiences. And because we're fans, first and foremost, we enjoy every second of being there. So with that in mind, what a personal highlight for you in your time with Brave? It can be a, it can be a fight show that you went to, or it can be something that happened outside of the realms of MMA, but you were there because of Brave. I would have to say, I've only had a handful of moments in mixed martial arts that choked me up to the point I couldn't talk. The first one was when BJ Penn fought Jens Pulver. And Jens tapped, and we all lost our minds, but it turned out we were, everybody was so noisy, we couldn't tell the round had already ended. Pat was, uh, Jens was just saying, legome, round's over. And then Jens ends up winning. And BJ Penn at the time was completely unbeatable. And Jens, I'm, I'm getting, like, choky thinking about it. Jens grabs the mic, and he says, I want to thank my father for beating the shit out of me every day of my life growing up. And I'm like, I just everybody's crying. We're like all oh, looking at each other. Jesus. And seeing uh, Gerard fighting for that belt gave me the same, the exact same feeling. I've, I've never seen somebody push themselves to the extent that Gerard did fighting for that $300,000 belt. It didn't go his way. But, but Jesus, I mean, he, he pushed forward the human condition in my eyes with that performance he put on. You tell me, how many injuries did he have? Are you talking about the Fakhreddin fight in the open? Yeah, sorry, Gerard, Fakhreddin. Yes, I, I interviewed him this week, and he told me that going into the second fight, he had a broken hand, broken bone in his foot, ACL, MCL, PCL were already gone when he went into the second fight, and then he broke two more bones in his foot in the second fight. It, it was the most moving fight performance I have ever seen. And uh, if you're listening, most sorry about that. CTE is a thing. <laughs> and when they make and when they make the movie of his life, which they will, if Jason Momoa is not playing Mo Fahredin, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> done, guys. But yeah, Mo Fahredin's performance. We we I talk I would talk about that guy 
at any given opportunity. He, he is the BMF of Brave. He is one of the toughest, but yet one of the nicest, most approachable men um, I think I've had the pleasure of meeting in this sport. I think uh, while we're interviewing Kirik, I do want to, while we're talking about Fakhruddin, you have a Fakhruddin story there, Mr. Phil Campbell, from uh, a, a little rolling experience with him in uh, Saudi, don't you? Yeah, when, when I say he's one of the, the nicest people, um, <laughs> just not when you're, when you're rolling with a guy. So, <laughs> so he, just, he just beat the shit out of Gustavo. Um, and I, he sort of sneaked up on me, took my back, and we were, we were rolling... We we're rolling light, having a little bit of fun. And, but it just shows how good he is because he can, in an instant, turn it on a little bit. And for people that don't know, I have tunnels in my ears. So I've got little, or sorry, quite big metal um, stretchers in my ears. And somehow his finger got into one of them. <laughs> and I'm not 100%, 100% sure what happened after that. I just remember, I think it was Jay was like, Phil, you're bleeding. Phil, you're, Phil, you're, ble you're, ble you're bleeding all over yourself, Phil. And we got up and I was just covered. The front of my white brief t-shirt was just covered in blood. But again, Mo did that, but then he could not have been more apologetic for the days afterwards. But he is a strong dude. He's a scary, strong dude. Phil didn't do anything about it. While I was going, Phil, you're bleeding. Phil, you're bleeding. He kind of gave me this look going, I know, but I can't do anything about it. Because Mo was just... I had Mo Fahreddin on top of me. I was like, I'll do something about it when Mo lets me. Strong guy, super strong guy, and an absolute gentleman of a human being. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, Kerry. You, you spoke about you know role models in 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 MMA, but I'm going to ask you to give us kind of you you spoke about your your best fight moments, but give us the the fighter that kind of woke it up for you as well. Who do you rate as kind of the top three fighters you've ever seen? And with all the traveling you've done with Brave and everything else you've done, what's your favorite kind of top? one or two places you've been to while you've been doing MMA travels? Oh, let's see. Well, before I talk about any fighters, I, I do have to give, uh, if I have a, a single guy I look up to the most, it's definitely uh, Sheikh Khaled. For fighters, the first one that comes to mind is Jeremy Horn um, because he reached, uh, he, he beat Chuck Liddell. He, he took down uh, Randy Couture and he's no more athletic than I am. Like, I don't know, even know if that guy can catch a Frisbee. He did it all with hard work. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's the proof positive to me that you can get, you can, you can reach the highest levels in this sport without being an extraordinary physical specimen if you're willing to put in the hard work. Um, so for a guy who's been influential in how I coach, it's, 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 absolutely, uh, it's absolutely Jeremy Horn. He's a uh, member of the he's a member of the 100 club too, isn't he? He's had over 100 MMA fights. He he is, and his face is completely unmarked. I'm like I'm more banged up than he is. Uh, he, <laughs> I was watching him fight up in Canada once, and I forget the guy's name. It was a real tough guy. It was a four man or an eight man uh, on a on a reservation. This would have been about 99, and he won the first fight. This Canadian guy won the first fight. Uh, and then the Canadian guy broke his hand. So they had to walk him out there and Horn got his arm raised up and he was absolutely livid. And afterwards I was like, you know, buddy, what's the matter? And he goes, I hate being a jujitsu guy because a striker beats on you and beats 
on you and then you tap them out and nothing bad happens to them. They just tap and they're fine and, 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 and you're all banged up. He wanted to get a piece of this guy really, really, really bad. Wasn't able to. But, but yeah, Jeremy Horn's 100 fights. I mean, the guy's got no CTE. He's got no scar tissue. He's got no broken nose um, because he is such a brilliant, careful fighter. And probably that, part of that probably came to the fact that he's not an extraordinary athlete. He had to rely on hard work and hard-earned technique. Uh, and that's, that saved him. I, I, I know guys with a lot less than 100 fights who have some, have some brain issues. Uh, but Jeremy sure isn't one of them. And then the favorite country you've been to and favorite experience? Uh, favorite country, I would have to say, and you may or may not agree, but it's Bahrain. I, I, don't, I, I don't respond necessarily to, to great sites like in Jordan. I saw Petra. Um, it's one of the World Heritage Sites. It's arguably the greatest thing I've seen. It's definitely the greatest thing I've seen in the last few years. Um, you know, Brave has taken us all over Asia, um, Africa, Europe, London, London, come on, everywhere. But I like people more than I like places. And the people in Bahrain are the kindest people I have ever met. The very first time I went there, I was chit-chatting with a, uh, a British fighter, one of the pro fighters, and he said he had a weird experience. He was, he was like a lot of people, he was nervous before the fight, so he went for a walk. It's a normal thing to do. And he ran into someone, and the guy said, hey, do you want to come over to my house? And he's like, sure. So he goes to the guy's house, sits down in the living room, and the guy disappears. And he thought he was about to about to become a, a real life participant in some kind of a mad kidnapping scene. He's like, Jesus, should I really have done this? I'm in, a, I'm in like a Muslim guy's house. And then the guy came back with his car keys and said to him, hey, here's my car keys. Why don't you take them for the afternoon? Enjoy yourself, drop them off tonight. That's Bahrain. It's just the like, literally the nicest people in the world. Yeah, I can't argue with you. I'm living in Bahrain at the moment, so I, I can't say that you're wrong. <laughs> I moved here for that reason. The people here are, the, I mean, the place is, is you know, and, and, and like you said, when I first was told I was coming to the World Championships in 2017 in Bahrain, I didn't know where Bahrain was either. So, you know, I was also going, oh, where am I flying to? Like, what, what is Bahrain? And, and came here, and I think that first experience in 2017 of, of, of seeing the World Championships and and seeing Sheikh Khalid and then the next one where the KHK Heroes thing happened at the opening ceremony. And I was like, well, you know, I'm sold. I, however I need to get to be part of this, however I need to get to be part of the brave and Sheikh Khalid and brave experience I'm in. And, and I've, I've been here for more than a year now. So for me, I definitely agree with that one. You speak a little bit. Um, I can't remember. It wasn't Barron's. It was one of the big business publications um, always has Singapore and Bahrain neck and neck for best place to uh, to work as an expatriate in the world. To anywhere. live, expat, yeah, so it's been ranked number number one or two as the best place to live as an expat. And I mean, again, half of the population here are expats, so it's 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 definitely an expat friendly country. You know, there's there's no you know laws that make it difficult to live here. I mean, even you know something as simple as during the lockdown, they're very efficient at dealing with it. They take take things very quick all the people you know if they say do something everyone listens like it's not one of those things where they have to corral people and convince them and they put out a press release they put out a government statement and everyone goes yeah we're in 
which for me is also a bit strange. Plus, you know, no crime. There's, so all of these kind of things add to it. But just the overall experience of even the people here, like no one looks at you like you're a foreigner or, or you know, that you're from someone else. I had an experience like that, which I'll share with you. I came back from, I can't remember wh which event it was. We came back from the event back to Bahrain and I'd just gotten my residency card and my, my visa stamped to my passport. So it was the first trip back and I filled in, you know, the immigration form that says, where you're living and all that kind of stuff. And I walked over to immigration and, and I gave the guy the form and he looked at me and looked at my passport, opened it and saw my residency visa. And he said, so why did you fill this in? And I said, well, you know, I need to fill in the immigration form. He says, no, you're from here now. You know, have a nice time. <laughs> me too. So that welcoming spirit is definitely a big part of being in Bahrain and, and very cool to experience. What, uh, sooner or later, man, it all comes down to money. What's your tax rate? Oh, no, it's very low. Bahrain's tax rate is very low and the currency is extremely strong. I think it's the second strongest currency in the world behind uh, Kuwait at the moment. What income tax rate do you pay? I think it's like 5%. And Jeez. that's when you get over thresholds. If you're under the threshold, you don't pay anything. Yeah, it's a little different here. Bill? <laughs> so I, always judge, I, always judge somewhere, I always judge somewhere by how much a pint costs. And that's my metric for how well their economy is doing. <laughs> So when we went, I think the, the, we three went to uh, to that Irish bar you took us to, Jay. And you know, pints, pints were pints, pints were a decent price. So they're doing okay with pints, and it was a it was a good Guinness as well. So uh, that's one of the many many reasons I'm a fan of Bahrain. Okay, using the pint standard, I would have to say, speaking personally, you can agree or disagree. The greatest country on the face of the planet Earth is Romania. <laughs> for a dollar and a plate of meat would satiate the mountain for like 10 bucks or something and you can get it was, it was like yeah. a meter of lager it brought us like you, you would buy like a meter of lager and there's maybe like 10 pints and this meter that they brought to you and you and it was delicious as well oh boys i'm gonna have a beer See, that, that for me, what, one of the things of when the lockdown started happening, the biggest unfortunate loss for me is that we couldn't go back to that same venue in Romania because that was the event that got cancelled. That was the largest beer hole in Europe. I love that place so much. I Googled it. Largest beer hole in Europe. Beers for a dollar. Huge plate of meat for like 10 bucks enough to feed any three people. Romania, by the beer standard, best country in the world. It was just, just the, thir the 13th of April we were meant to be there, guys. How heartbreaking is that? So I, oh, was it really? Yeah. yeah it, and then tomorrow, it, tomorrow, if, the, if the, the calendar had been the way that it's projected, we would be in Sweden right now doing a show. Jesus. Yeah, so I, guys, huh? I interviewed Chad on, on Monday, and that would have been fight night. So I interviewed him on the day he was supposed to fight in Romania. Ah. Uh. <laughs> so give me give me the lockdown tell, tell me this we've, we've spoken about we've spoken about the, your beginnings in martial arts we've spoken about the present tell me a little bit about the future are there any prospects in, in martial arts that you're saying we should keep an eye on or or how do you think this, this sport is going to continue to progress i think there's something even more important that i'd like to touch on everybody knows well everybody knows a couple of things everybody knows everybody fights hurt if you compete in mixed martial arts, you're going to get hurt. Everybody fights hurt. Everybody gets bad injuries. Everybody knows 
if you get a torn ACL, which, you know, happens in my gym pretty regularly, it's a long process to come back. It's not like you tear your ACL, something magical happens, and you're ready to jump in again. I think that the sport is going to recover from COVID-19 the same way. It's not like MMA gyms are just going to be able to open up in a month or in two weeks, and everything's going to be back to normal. So what I've done is spent the last three weeks or so, every single day without a break, reprogramming my fight gym because we, we were formerly class-based. It was all classes. That's what we had. Um, I've spent, it looks like, as somebody came in, somebody quipped recently, said, it looks like your gym threw up in itself. It's only halfway through. But I'm reconfiguring <laughs> the entire gym to with the expectation that we're going to be operating with social distancing still in place. Um, I've expanded the exhaust capacity so I can circle the air, recycle the air much quicker. I made the men's room bigger, women's room bigger. I've added more heavy bags, speed bags, double M bags, maze ball. I got battle ropes. I'm adding a whole bunch of uh, climbing wall I, I put up yesterday. I believe that fight gyms are going to have to operate for a lot longer, many of them, than people realize with social distancing in place. That means no pad holding. That means no grappling. It means no sparring. Um, and if I could get a word out to everybody that, like me, runs a fight gym, it would be, guys, in, in not going to be like every fight gym can just open up. We can go back to rolling and we can go back to, uh, we can go back to sparring. Um, I read a recent interview with um, Weidman, and he said, this is the best his body has ever felt. He's been training for a fight at home by himself. He goes running. Uh, he gets, uh, he gets uh, Matty Serra and uh, Ray Longo on, um, uh, on video, basically on, like, Zoom. And that's how they watch his techniques and give him some feedback. But he said he doesn't know. He goes, maybe this is just a better way to prepare for a fight. He's never felt so good. So if I wanted to get out anything to every fight, Jim, it's not about a great new prospect coming up. It's that gyms should think really strongly about redoing their programming so that you can train and improve while maintaining social distance. Good advice. And, and speaking about obviously coming back, Brave coming back, which are the fights that you're most looking forward to that were kind of were in discussions or around discussions or in your head if you could do matchmaking? Which are the fights you're most looking forward to seeing and commentating? Uh, talking about everybody, uh, talking about everybody fighting hurt. <clears throat> if I was king, I would make Hamza Chimaya fight every single weekend. <laughs> I wouldn't even care who he fought. He can fight a guy from the audience. He can fight Mike Tyson. I don't care. I just want to see that man fight every weekend. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a matchup for me, and I'm gonna say that Hamzat fights for Giraffe for the welterweight belt, win or lose. Whether it's an interim or he wins that belt and it goes into someone else for the middleweight belt, to have a matchup between Hamzat and Fakhridi. I'm in. I, I will. I will fly myself there. Look at false face. <laughs> yeah, I'm so down for that fight. So down for that fight. That's just. That just reminds me of Rocky Three. What's your prediction for the fight? Pain. Oh, someone's. 
Some two people might get knocked out. Three people might get knocked out in that fight. I don't know. That's just how dangerous both of those men are. So you can see what I've been doing with my time. It's just going, geez, if I could make any fight without any implications, who would I actually put against each other? I've just come up with some really crazy ideas, but it's been a lot of fun being in my head for a few days. That's legit. Um, guys, um, we've been on for quite a while, so I, I think it's, uh, it's cool to wrap this thing up, and it's been great catching up with you. But, Kerry, before we go, I'm going to get a little bit deep and meaningful on you, and I wanted to ask... What would you like your, your legacy to be in the sport of mixed martial arts? How would you like to be remembered when it's all said and done? For records keeping, um, for, for having played a role in fighter health and safety. Mixed martial arts is inherently difficult. It's two men or two women trying to hurt each other. I've never tried to sugarcoat that or, or work around it. People are highly trained at hurting and they're trying to hurt each other. But it can be done more dangerously, and it can be done less dangerously. Uh, and the, the role I played in, uh, in, in, in keeping suspensions and uh, in coming up with uh, an MMASI to identify fighters that potentially need to get a little harder looked at by a doctor um, is, is where I hope my greatest contribution lies. Beautiful, Mama. Now, before we, uh, before we sign off, uh, where can people find you on the likes of social media where can people give your gem a little bit of love mixedmartialarts.com baby the name of the sport is the name of the site we got it all there well <laughs> the name of the sport is the name of the site get that get that on a t-shirt i will wear that quite happily in my mind uh jay where can people find us if people want to keep up with what we're doing where can people find out the brave insider podcast yeah, so Brave Insider Pod on uh, Instagram, Brave Insider Podcast on Facebook. You can find us on Anchor and pretty much every other po podcasting site out there. Uh, you can get hold of me on JD from Skulkbeck on Instagram, Jason from Skulkbeck on Facebook, and yourself, Phil. You will find me on Instagram at PC underscore commentary. Um, at the minute, that's just basically pictures of my home workouts and ranting about old people getting in my way when I go for a run. Uh, and trying to work out the moral implications of kicking them as I go past. Um, and you'll find me at Phil Campbell on Facebook. Guys, it's been great. Kerrick, definitely one of my favorite people in MMA. It's been awesome to have you on. I'm sure we'll have you on again in the next couple of weeks and picking your brain on a couple of things. It's been, it's been awesome. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it, brother, and I'm looking forward to the day we can see in person. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Cheers. And I just wanna be brave And I just wanna be Talk to me wrong, you might catch a right hook And I just, I just, I just, I just, I just wanna be brave I just, I just, I just, I just, I just wanna be brave And I just, I just, I just, I just, I just wanna be Talk to me wrong, this right hook is for the book